Good afternoon. Today I'm going to be talking about the sort of going global, American involvement in the First World War. And I'm particularly focusing on British-American-German relationships. So this sort of three-way triangle <coughs> in the period 1914 to 1917. So this crucial period which leads to American involvement in the First World War. So the first thing to note is that Anglo-American relations in 1914 weren't quite what they are now. We often look back through these wonderful post-1945 rose-tinted glasses and assume that we're always sort of together Anglo-Saxon nations. This wasn't true. In 1895, Britain and America very nearly went to war over Venezuela. It didn't come about, but it gives some kind of indication that relations were not perfect. Um, by 1914, they improved a fair bit, but still, these were two rival great powers in this period. Somewhat ironically, 1914 saw uh, one of the, the key focuses in Anglo-American relations was the centenary of the peace between the two countries. So the War of 1812 had ended in 1814, 1814-15, and there were big plans to celebrate this peace, the centenary of peace. And it's quite instructive because the American government tried to get some state funding for these kind of celebrations. And some of the speeches in Congress give an interesting colour on the relationship. So Thomas Gallagher, uh, represent House of Representatives for Illinois, and he stated in Congress that England was only at peace when it was to her advantage. The passage of the bill, this is the bill to fund these celebrations, would be a sham and a glaring lie. 100 years ago, British invaders under General Ross, with a force of 4,000 men, appeared in the Potomac, captured Washington, and before evacuating the city, burned the Capitol and the public buildings to the ground. Sorry, Brian. Few more shameful acts were recorded in civilised history. It was the more disgustingly shameful the fact this atrocious act of vandalism was done under strict orders issued from the government in England. In the Civil War, England attempted to form a European coalition against the Union. In the Spanish-American War, her diplomacy exerted her agencies against the United States. Wherever she had the opportunity, her secret intrigues and machinations were directed to the same end. Now, I think it's fair to say dear Mr Gallagher was something of an extreme. He doesn't look that <coughs> radical in his picture, but um, his views were not reflective of, sort of all of American opinion. But there's definitely a strand within this. In the 1913 annual report, which the British ambassador, Cecil Spring Rice, sent to uh, London in early 1914, he wrote, It is customary at international banquets to talk of the common lineage and common inheritance of Britain and the United States. These remarks, which are greeted at the moment with enthusiasm, are generally followed by statements in the press based upon inexorable facts, the effect that about one half of the people of the United States have absolutely no race connection with England, and those who have have a strong heredity, hereditary reason for wishing ill on their ancient oppressor. <laughs> so Anglo-American relations were not quite the same as they are today, <coughs> I think it's fair to say. So moving on to the outbreak of war. America on the outbreak of war and American sentiments, generally speaking were sympathetic towards the Allied cause. But there were distinct hues within this. 
So France, in particular, was seen very much as the innocent victim. Um, she was invaded by Germany in, in August 1914, and she had no part to play. Within American sentiment, Britain and Russia don't come off quite so well. Uh, Russia is perceived as being autocratic. Sort of the rule of the czar is everything that American liberal Eastern opinion sort of rails against. Whilst Britain, generally viewed as England rather than Britain, um, is always presented as being sort of commercial and grasping. The US President Woodrow Wilson was relatively pro-ally and pro-British. And he wrote to Sir Edward Grey soon after the outbreak of war that everything that I love most in the world is at stake. If the Germans succeed, we shall be forced to take such measures of defence as will be fatal to our form of government and American ideals. Despite this, Wilson had no intention of getting involved in the war, and even if he'd have wanted to, there was no way American opinion would have allowed him to. America at this stage was definitely neutral, and Wilson took a very strictly neutral stance on all matters. So, moving on to have a quick look at some German propaganda. So, almost immediately on the outbreak of war, the Germans began a major propaganda campaign in all neutral countries, uh, but especially focused on the United States. The Germans were ready, the British definitely weren't in 1914 for this sort of thing. A lot of the material was targeted very much at an American audience, so it focuses on Russian despotism. It focuses on issues of British sort of commercial trade, the fact that the only way the British could compete with the Germans in terms of trade was effectively to go to war with them and wipe their commerce from the seas. This is the angle that the Germans were taking. And the idea is very much that uh, France and Germany were the innocent parties in the war. Quite how you managed to marry that up, I'm not entirely sure, but that was certainly what they tried. The first and sort of most important thing to know about this is it's very obviously state propaganda. It says at the top uh, that this is from the German Information Ministry in Berlin, or German Information Service, sorry. And it says at the bottom that it's from Berlin, printed in Berlin, etc. Now, the first thing the British hear about this is when they get these documents forwarded from their ambassadors and consuls in neutral countries. And the Foreign Office are really quite worried. They think that the Germans have stolen a march on them and that they're going to influence American opinion in a way that the British haven't. And it's quite clear that they're worried about this. But it very, very quickly dissipates when American sentiment on the issue becomes clear. So Spring Rice, the ambassador, recorded in late September that the German press campaign seems so far to be unsuccessful. I rather gather that it's being seen through. He later went on to write to Sir Edward Grey that we have made no ex-party statement, no attempt to influence the press, no official effort to influence American policy. We have given the facts and let the facts speak for themselves. And in Spring Rice's opinion, this was the reason why pro-British sentiment was actually much stronger towards the end of 1914 than it was, certainly within certain parties, than it was at the beginning. The Germans had, unlike in their recent World Cup, they'd scored something of an own goal here. It was a definite failure the initial German propaganda campaign. So, moving on to Britain and American relations. The key issue here is the blockade. 
the blockade was, at least until 1916, the, the weapon which Britain had against Germany. If you think of Britain's small army going onto the continent, everyone always focuses on the Western Front, but Britain's role within the Allies was very much that of the naval power, and the key weapon was the blockade. By 1918, this might have changed slightly, but it's still worth noting that it was the German home front which collapsed, rather than the battlefront, although that's now something of a contentious issue. But certainly, the blockade had a major effect, and it was the key weapon within the British arsenal. America was the only major trading nation that was neutral, certainly politically as well as economically. As such, America was a very, very important battleground. The Americans couldn't be bullied by Britain in the way that other neutral nations could. So if you're talking about the smaller South American nations, the Scandinavian nations, etc., Britain had the economic and military power to bully them. That wasn't the case with the United States. Similarly, the Americans had a huge amount at stake here. American, the American economy depended very, very heavily on the export of primary produce to Europe, particularly things like cotton, food, and minerals, things like copper and other ores. Um, these are huge elements of the American economy at this time. And if you think about the world economy effectively as being dominated by three powers, Britain, Germany, and the United States, if you try and knock Germany out of that equation, it has a massive effect on the other two. So the Americans were always going to be very anti-blockade, no matter what, what else was going on. And as such, British policy in America was driving at two fundamentally divergent aims. One was to enforce the blockade as closely as possible, get American support in doing that. And the other was to keep the Americans on side. But everyone knew that enforcing the blockade would anger the Americans. Spring Rice wrote that the question is therefore between the imperative military necessity of war, i.e. the blockade, and the equally imperative necessity of preventing additional complications. A little forbearance on both sides might make matters all right. Here he was being distinctly optimistic. The blockade was the cause of regular crises in Anglo-American relations between 1914 and 1917. The initial application of the blockade caused huge problems because the Americans felt that the British were <coughs> ripping up international law and sort of doing whatever they liked. And there's a certain element of truth in this, that the British had effectively signed an agreement which said that they were going to abide by certain rules, and they decided that they weren't. The fact that Parliament hadn't officially ratified the agreement gave the British a neat get-out clause, as it were. Further crises erupted uh, relating to the exports of cotton, the exports of copper, and these crises were generally got over by sort of quick fixes. So, for example, in 1914, the British government agreed to buy the entire US output of copper in order to stop it going anywhere else, effectively. Um, this happens towards the end of 1914 as a sort of a, a fix. One of the major troubles the Foreign Office had at this stage was that they were being pulled in two directions. So you have the Americans saying, what on earth are you doing? Why are you stopping us doing all this trade? 
Um, the US Secretary of the Interior told an important British commentator in Washington that the US had acquiesced in numerous violations of international law by Britain, but the British seemed indifferent and careless of American forbearance. He was really quite annoyed, if only because he was coming up to an election in 1916 and having a load of people, pick cotton pickers, miners, etc., out of work was not good for your re-election prospects. But at the same time, the Foreign Office were getting pushed really hard by the Admiralty and other government departments to stop the leakages in the blockade. The most important of them was through neutral countries. So if you stop <coughs> exports from the United States to Germany, that's all very well. But if all the ships can go to Holland and then put the goods on a barge and sail it down the Rhine, then you're not actually achieving very much. And as the Admiralty noted uh, in sort of mid-November mid, uh, 1914, Dutch imports of copper for September and October 1914 were ten times larger than those for 1913. It didn't take a genius to work out where all these resources were going. The blockade was not being as effective as it could be, and this was a huge issue. So the Foreign Office was having to negotiate this tightrope between the American opinion on one's hand and British war aims on the other. And one of the key tools to do this was propaganda. We've heard a little bit earlier about Wellington House, and Wellington House came, uh, was really important in trying to persuade American opinion that what the British were doing was right and was legal. So you have leading British figures, notably the maritime strategist Sir Julian Corbett and other sort of influential ex-judges, etc., writing and pronouncing on how the British blockade was in fact fully within international law, and they were distributing this through their personal channels to connections in the United States. The British attempts to gain sympathy from the Americans, or at least to gain acceptance of their actions, were hugely helped by the Germans in certain sort of ironic ways. So following on from German own goal over propaganda, they proceeded to score another couple. The first was the wonderful, rather blatant attempts to incite strike action amongst particularly German and Austrian immigrants working in the United States, working in munitions factories. So the German embassy was connected whether or not it was actually ever proved that they were doing this, but certainly United States papers were full of stories of Germans trying to incite strikes in America. This was not something that the American government was overly happy about, unsurprisingly. And this was soon followed up by the Declaration of Unrestricted Submarine Warfare. This meant that German submarines would effectively shoot on sight. And for the very first time, Americans became targets in this war. American civilians were being killed in the North Atlantic uh, by German submarines. And, of course, this fundamentally reshapes the German-American relationship. Of course, the major event was, on the 7th of May, the sinking of the Lusitania. 1,198 people were killed, of whom 128 were Americans. It fundamentally changes the game in terms of German-American relations. <coughs> the trouble which the British had was they had this wonderful story now 
the Lusitania story, with which you can attack Germany seemingly for free in the United States. But how were they going to use it? This was a bit of a problem. The Foreign Office didn't want to be seen, or anyone else, Foreign Office Wellington House, didn't want to be seen as actively playing on the deaths of a thousand civilians, a thousand or more civilians. It was not something that would go down well. And so they struggled with this question for a while, until in April 1916, it came to their notice that a German artist had produced a medal celebrating the sinking of the Lusitania. And the British, British very quickly realised what they had on their hands. This was propaganda gold. They also realised that this wasn't the German government producing this medal. This was a, a German artist. And they certainly weren't distributing these to crew, the crew of the submarine sinking them. But the British, of course, neglected to tell anyone this information because it seemed to ruin their quite good story. The medal is... This is a copy which we've got, which the Foreign Office made... And as you can see here, there's the Lusitania sinking, and the Germans are trying to show there's an armoured car there and some guns falling out, which the Germans are trying to claim that this is uh, contraband of war being carried on this vessel. And on the other side, the back, you've got death selling tickets. Um, so it's a really cheery, nice, <laughs> nice thing, this is. So the British quickly decided that this was great, and so they tried to buy up as many of these things as possible through intermediaries in Holland and places. And at some point, the German government realised quite what was going on and stopped all exports of these and very quickly stopped all production as well. This was a serious faux pas. Of course, the, the other, it played into numerous other issues which were coming out at the same time about things like the Belgian atrocities. So the day after the sinking of the Lusitania was released the Bryce Report. Now, that was pure luck, but this idea that the Germans were sort of ruthless, brutal people just kept reoccurring, and of course the British continually wanted to pick at that scab. So the British very quickly produced a whole load of leaflets which were distributed around the world with the caption, This medal has been struck in Germany with the object of keeping alive in German hearts the recollection of the glorious achievement of the German Navy in deliberately destroying an unarmed passenger ship together with 1,198 <coughs> non-combatants, men, women and children. The signal's pretty clear. But the British decided that this wasn't enough. So they soon started to mint replicas of these things. <laughs> now this is, as I say, it's a rubber die that was made, effectively so as to be able to produce the replicas. And they produced thousands of these things and sold them for a shilling apiece. And one of the, the, sort of the best places where they sold them were a series of Allied bazaars which took place in the United States. They were effectively exhibitions of the Allied war effort, um, of course presenting a very pro-Allied story. And these reached a mass audience. So, for example, the first day of the Allied bazaar in Boston, 40,000 40, people came through the gates. So it's a really large audience you're reaching here. And the medals sold like hotcakes. One of the British propagandists wrote that it produces just the right kind of stormy indignation in everyone. So these things went down very well. But despite the success of British propaganda, Germany, uh, America remained resolutely neutral. They didn't want to get involved in somebody else's war. Um, and in all honesty, who can blame them? It didn't look like a particularly fun game to be playing. 
So the other issue which was coming up was at the end of 1916, there was another big crisis in Anglo-American relations. This was focused around uh, Britain stopping uh, neutral males. So mail had always been something which nobody touched. It, it was almost sacred. And the Germans were using parcels and other letters and mails as a way to get exports in and out. So you, you had sort of mail between Sweden and the United States rose 4,000-fold between 1914 and 1916 as people started shipping goods across the Atlantic. And so the British eventually had enough and started basically sort of seizing this and checking what was in there. And the American government, this was a complete no-go. This was a step too far. So British-American relations were a bit on the rocks at the end of 1916. And then, of course, you have the wonderful Zimmerman telegram. So this was received in, in January 1917, and this is the very first uh, decoding of it, which we've got uh, here, and this is one of our, our documents. So it's, it's very interesting because it's sort of, you can tell that he's not actually managed to get all of it. And there were dot, dot, dots, and there's a section which says, I'm not sure about this. But it sort of, they're, they're working on it. And the first part of the telegram was saying that the Germans were going back to unrestricted submarine warfare. So after the sinking of the Lusitania, the Germans had to eventually pull back and stop sinking neutral ships, uh, stop sinking ships without stopping them and making sure the passengers were okay. So the, Ger the Germans, by the end of 1916, were really struggling with the British blockade, and they needed to win the war quickly. So the unrestricted submarine warfare strategy was designed to win the war quickly. So that was going to take place. The telegram states it was going to take place at the beginning of February uh, 1917, and it did. The Germans expected that this would bring the Americans into the war. In truth, it didn't. The Americans severed diplomatic relations, but they decided that they still didn't want to play this war game and remained neutral. Um, so the British had in this telegram um, a piece of gold. As we've heard, the, it effectively invites the uh, Mexicans to invade the southern United States. Um, it's extraordinary uh, in, to modernise. Uh, it really is, is quite special. Um, the story of it, in fact, gets even better because it was sent from Berlin to Washington but because, as Martins mentioned, the British cut the German cables, the, British, the Germans couldn't send anything from Berlin to Washington. So this was given, coded, to the US Embassy. And it was sent by the US Embassy to the US Senate Department, who then gave it to the US Embassy in Washington. So effectively, the Americans transported this telegram for the Germans, which was in all intents and purposes, a declaration of war. But they had no idea what they were reading, what they were sending. To make it better, the British only found out about it because they were spying on the Americans. <laughs> they were reading the American signals, in part to find out what the Americans were doing, but also because they knew the Germans were using this as a method of communication. So the British get hold of this, and eventually they manage to get a nice, complete copy the code was a difficult one, so it took them a while. But how could they use it? You've got this telegram, and you go to the Americans and you say, look, 
the Germans are planning to, to ask the Mexicans to invade. And then the Americans will turn around and say, well, where did you get this? At which point you're like, um, well, we were spying on your signals. And so that was a no-go. So the British had to wait for about a month until they could manage to find a way to get a copy of this from Mexico, where it ended up, so that they could then claim to the Americans that this was where they got this, this wonderful um, intelligence coup from. And, of course, as we've heard, this very quickly resulted in America coming into the war. Relations between America and Germany were already very bad. Uh, this was the final straw on the camel's back, as it were. So, to briefly conclude, what I've been trying to get at today is I was asked to, to put paper together on, on getting global, going global, American entry into the war. And what I hope I've shown is that, in fact, America was always in the war. She might not have been a belligerent, but this was a crucial battleground for both sides in trying to control and develop American sentiment and opinion in order to shape their own war policies. Of particular importance were the blockade and German submarine warfare. Both sides felt that these were war-winning strategies, but neither side could implement them to the extent they wanted for fear of alienating American opinion. <clears throat> As such, propaganda, intelligence and diplomacy became vital tools in this battleground as a way of trying to influence America and allow you to use your tools to the utmost extent and limit the enemies. And in the end, the British proved far more adept at doing this than the Germans did, although there is perhaps an argument to be made that the Germans helped the British far more than they ever helped themselves. <laughs> Thank you. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.